Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. concerns me where the field has been going. I feel like what is happening is unethical and irresponsible um, in some places. Laura Edwards-Leeper was the first psychologist at the first major youth gender clinic in the U.S. at Boston Children's Hospital. She says she has helped hundreds of teens and young adults transition successfully after a comprehensive assessment. Do you have conversations with your colleagues about this whole area of accepting what young people are saying too readily? Yes, everyone is very scared to speak up because we're afraid of not being seen as being affirming or being supportive of these young people or doing something to hurt the trans community. But even some of the providers are trans themselves and share these concerns. That's from 60 Minutes Sunday night. Yeah, yeah, we'll bring that up for a couple of reasons. First of all, we got this email from uh, Al Anonymous. He says, I just finished listening to your segment about young girls and their confusion with their gender, transgender thing. And actually, the one of the focuses, one of the foci of the stories of the story on 60 Minutes was all the people who regret it, who who get various uh, hormone injections or the surgeries or whatever and realize, wait a minute. No, I'm a dude. I was just an unhappy dude. And mm-hmm. now I'm uh, unhappy to the point of being suicidal dude who doesn't have my parts anymore. Well, that's why Glad is slamming 60 Minutes for their shameful story on transgender youth. Yeah, that's right. If you so much as tap the brakes and say, hey, we need to be careful because this is a serious thing, that makes you a hater. That makes you a transphobe. Glad questioned the timing of the piece, noting that 30 states have now introduced bills targeting the trans community. Well, you you could use the word targeting the trans community because it's literally true, but they're targeting the trans community because they're afraid way too many young people are getting uh, all kinds of changes to their bodies done without thinking this through. And we uh, mentioned the, the book Irreversible Damage by Abigail Schreier, um, in which she points out that until a few years ago, gender dysphoria was vanishingly rare, typically found in less than 0.01% of the population, right. emerged in early childhood, afflicted males almost exclusively, and almost always took care of itself. I did not know it affect, uh, It was a male thing almost exclusively. That's mm-hmm. interesting. But today, whole groups of female friends in colleges, high schools, even middle schools across the country are coming out as transgender. These are girls who had never experienced any discomfort in their biological sex until they heard a coming out story from a speaker at a school assembly or discovered the Internet community of trans influencers, etc., etc. We got this note from Al. Uh, my daughter is 11, and in her group of friends, she's considered the oddball. Why? She's a girl who identifies as a girl, and she likes boys. That makes her weird in her 11-year-old friend group. 11-year-olds? In this group of five girls, two think they want to be trans, and all of them except my daughter are pansexual or bisexual. Boy, this subject has not come up. My son's 11. It's I'm pretty sure they're not talking about any of this stuff at all. I suppose it depends on the crowd you run with. Well, yeah, that's part of it. And the other point of it, uh, and the point of Abigail Schreier's book, is it's become a craze among young women, and there are clusters of it. It's almost like a suicide cluster. And if you know anything about the psychology of adolescent girls, especially, they are incredibly prone to cluster behavior. 
um, his sense of belonging, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, he points out, I don't live in some liberal enclave. He says where he lives. I'm 40, and as a 10-year-old in the Bay Area, I don't ever remember hearing a single boy or girl questioning whether they were actually a boy or a girl. And we had no idea what it meant to be pansexual. Even now, I had to duck, duck, go it. I never in my life thought I'd have to worry about my daughter being accepted because she's a girl who likes boys. Wild. Yeah, that is wild. It is. It has become a craze. It's a... It's a way to show you're progressive and virtuous and the rest of it. And you get enormous support. I saw it when my oldest daughter was going to school. She gained, she joined some sort of gay straight alliance. And if somebody turned out to be gay, it was not, oh, okay. It was a cause for celebration. It was a great thing. It was an exciting thing. And I just, I think again, again, don't hate on anybody. But tap the brakes. Got a Bitcoin story. Got to have a Bitcoin story every day, right? Absolutely. I think it's a rule now. I didn't know about the infamous Bitcoin pizza guy. Oh, yeah. He's a big deal. Yeah. So he got uh, paid in Bitcoins at one time. They were 10,000 Bitcoins worth $41. And this was back in 2010. He uh, spent the Bitcoin on travel. Um, if he had held on to that Bitcoin, it would be worth $365 million. Hope you enjoyed your trip. Wow. Holy crap. He said he has no regrets. Well, okay, maybe that helps you get through the day. I'm saying you have no regrets. I mean, it, it, it doesn't hurt to say, you know, I wish I'd held on to it. Obviously, it would have changed my life. Maybe I could have spent half on travel. <laughs> no. Hung on to a tenth of it, yeah. which would have yielded me $36 million. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. If you'd had uh-huh. held on to 10% of it, you'd have insane wealth. Of course, what's the alternative? He hangs on to those regrets and it makes him completely insane no. and ruins his life. No, Let no, it no, go. No, 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 no. Let it go. You don't need to Let go that go. far. But uh, to, to claim, no, I don't regret it at all. Well, yeah, obviously, if I could do it over again, I would do it differently. <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. Uh, uh, which kind of gets us into the whole stages of grief thing. Uh, which we got on yesterday, which is a damned interesting topic because everybody grieves at some point, you know, and there's different levels of it. I've had examples of people grieving for a pet that passed or somebody who had their house burned down from wildfire, obviously deaths in the family and that sort of stuff. Mine was around divorce. Um, uh, but here's a therapist saying, um, I have doubted the Kubler-Ross model of grief several times, but it seems to ring true for patients again and again. That was your argument yesterday. So a lot of science says that the stages of grief, anger, depression, bargaining, whatever it is, uh, is eating one of them because I uh, ate an entire no. pie, so that was one of them. But oh the, the, uh, a lot of studies show that, 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 that it's not real and not helpful for, for grief or has never been proven in a lab setting. But as Joe pointed out, if everybody hears those and thinks, yeah, that makes sense to me, and it becomes a worldwide phenomenon, as it has for a half a century, there's got to be something to it. Well, and Dr. Kubler-Ross, as you pointed out yesterday, said it's been misinterpreted. People, it's not in that order, and it's not one at a time. And Right, we got this. So. Divorce, I'm sorry you're going through that. I went through my divorce last year during the pandemic. The stages of grief are 100% accurate. The pain I felt, worst pain in my life, next to losing my father as a teenager. Honestly, it's beyond painful. I pray for you and your family that it's a fairly easy process, but the stages of grief made sense to me. Well, if they make sense to you, then they make sense to you, and I think they make sense to me. 
So, okay, scientists who say they aren't real, I think human beings are saying they are real. Yeah, and and we, I think we agreed yesterday that it's not stages, and Dr. Uh, Kubler-Ross Stages uh, is the out. wrong word. Yeah, the aspects of grief. The uh, yeah. yeah. And you bounce in and out of them. They're like whack-a-mole. Mm. You get the, uh, the the denial beat back down, but then the bargaining comes back, and then just you know. Is the headline here? Scientists don't understand emotions because I, I, I feel like when <laughs> it's phrased be. that way, it's less surprising. That me, it be. hasn't been proved in a lab setting. How exactly are you going to run that experiment? I think the lab setting is the. All planet. right, now it's time to execute your mother, and then we'll see how it goes from here. I think the lab of the planet Earth for fifty years in forty languages around the world. I think that lab says that it's pretty accurate. Yeah. 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 And I know my, my dad and my late mom actually, uh, did a, uh, led a class on grieving. They took it and then led it subsequently. And, and it was, uh, you know, uh, the aspects of that are the people, everybody goes through them. It's good. Interesting stuff. And, and just knowing what I'm going through is normal and it's okay that I'm going through it seems to be really helpful for people. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is not weird. This, I'm supposed to feel this way is a right. really good part of feeling bad. It's normal to feel this way. Armstrong and Getty. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. Point of personal privilege. Don't get brazen with me. The Armstrong and Getty Show. So Dale Mortensen is imagining critical race theory standing at the podium and, and, and introducing itself to the school board, students, parents, teachers, and anything close. Uh, it's so... I'll just read part of it to you. It's it's brilliant. And again, trust me, the whole thing is worth it. Hi, my my real name is Critical Race Theory. I've presented myself to many well-known communities using words you think you know, like equity or inclusion. So if it puts you at ease, just call me equity until we get to know each other better. I'm here to institute an all-inclusive, anti-racist educational program. I'm sure that you all have a common understanding of the term racist. And if you have questions about this new term, I'll explain what that actually means once we have the program in place. Uh-huh. You're good you're good people and I know all of you want to be anti-racist so let's begin Now, I do understand that my name has the word theory in it but don't pay too much attention to that as we will be teaching CRT is truth Besides, theory and truth both start with a T, so later oh, we can just use them interchangeably and eventually make a permanent name change. I'm going to ask you to please not refer to me using the terms Marxist, Maoist, or Stalinist. CRT is very different from those ideologies. We won't be dividing your children or the citizens of your country by class. We will be using race instead. But enough about words and names. Let's get to the program. That's good stuff. Oh, it is. It is. Um... Our first order of business will be to install a very comprehensive equity program. We here at CRT like the word equity because it sounds so much like equality or the value in your home, and that feels good. But under equality, the law or equality of opportunity doesn't really work for us here at CRT. Those equalities have been worked on for 225 years through struggle, amendments to the Constitution, war, movements, civil rights laws, rules, regulations, trillions of dollars spent, and yet there are still individuals that succeed or fail more often than others in every single school or business in America. Then they make the the point that if you get um, uh, virtually identical students from a limited number of homes of the same races, socioeconomics, etc., they don't have equal outcomes. But that's very uncomfortable to discuss, so we'd really prefer that we don't discuss that at all. 
But they say that uh, CRT has many goals, but here are a couple of CRT's favorites from the dozens of word salad goals selection. One, to ensure that the predictability of student outcomes do not correlate with any social or cultural factor. And two, to ensure that every student is embraced in their full identity in a community of belonging that empowers them to flourish both academically and socio-emotionally. But then they point out that your kid is no longer your kid. Your kid is your kid's race, and that's all they are. Maybe I'll share a little bit more of this with you in a in a bit, but it's good. It's devastating. And Tahisi Coates on uh, CBS, our early show, um, talking about critical race theory. Yeah, so uh, critical race theory is a is a is a is a, um, a framework uh, for understanding uh, American history and American life. Uh, and and the basic premise of it starts from the idea that racism is endemic to to this society. Now you can agree with that or, or disagree with that. You know, there are all sorts of you know historical theories or theories that you know can be applied you know, to the law, et cetera, but to ban it. I just really, really want to focus on that. You know, it's not what your opinion of it is. The idea that it should be banned from teaching at all or banned from discussion or banned from education or pushed out of the public square. I just, you know, I, I think that's that's a huge problem. I think whatever your opinion of those ideas are, like you should find that problematic. There are many notions and ideas in America that I totally and completely disagree with. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't ban them. There are a lot of people who I think are, are, are you know, are dead, dead wrong. You know, I wouldn't, you know, move for schools and for universities to ban a discussion of those ideas. I just think that's a that's a that's a totally, totally different level. Um, uh, never, never get Tim Sandifer started on Tahisi Coates as we have before, because he'll go on for an hour about how much he hates the guy and how dangerous he is for the country and his views of the world. Um, but uh, as to what he just said there, Joe. Well, I appreciated him expressing that point of view, but it is hilarious. It, it reminds me very much of certain fundamentalist Islamist countries uh, where they insisted on having uh, democracy, and they got rid of the dictator, and they voted in Islamist uh, totalitarianism. <laughs> they used democracy to end democracy. And the thing about critical race theory, and I just love him using the term problematic, because the more you learn about this, you realize that's one of the weapons they have. They just they, they pick apart, they parse what you've said, and they find an individual word, a phrase, they deliberately misinterpret it, claim that it proves you're a racism, uh, a racist, rather. Uh, they Then they say it's problematic and the rest. It's just, it's absolute garbage. But what reminds me of the the Islamist thing is that he's saying no, it's, it's an open uh, market of ideas, right? Just free discussion of ideas, which everybody who's sane agrees with. But once you get the critical race theory into your schools, for instance, you dare not dissent. Any of you tried to speak up against it at your uh, re-education camp for your job there? How'd that go? Any of you teachers who hate this stuff when you brought it up during the training session? Whoa, this is racist. How'd that go for you? That's a good Mott and Bailey argument he's presenting. There, so his uh, which one is your castle? The Bailey, um, the, the, the Mott, Mott is the castle, the Mott is the, the castle. Bailey is the, the like the courtyard. Okay, so his, his Mott is oh, we want to teach different views in school. Okay, yeah, I can't disagree with that. And the view I want to teach is that we're a systemically racist country through and through, and white supremacy dominates every aspect of the country, right? And then if you challenge on that, you go back to your Mott. Well, I thought we were going to discuss everything. I thought we were going to have a free exchange of ideas. Yeah, you're teaching a sick, racist philosophy to kids. It's become part of a craze. And I swear the educational establishment is more prone to falling for crazes than the average 13-year-old. It's unbelievable, and this one's particularly evil. But Dale wrote us this long piece, and, and it's it's so good, though. It's, it's critical race theory introducing itself. And it uh, mentions some of the goals and... 
And critical race theory, speaking for itself, says, as you read this, parents, board members, and teachers may have a few questions that come to mind, such as, how will you ensure or enforce these goals? Isn't correlation similar to coincidence, or wouldn't it be better to examine causation, which requires empirical evidence? Are outcomes grades or something else? What are the social or cultural factors? Uh, How will you ensure or measure whether a student is being embraced in their full identity or is flourishing? Does academically mean grades, learning targets, standards? What does it mean? Well, I was actually hoping that you'd be lulled by the virtuousness and empathy emoting from our goals, but I'll try to answer these questions. Truthfully, many of these concepts are impossible to measure and so nebulous that you will need to open a Department of Equity and Inclusion to do the enforcement and interpreting for you. This new administrative arm will need to be fully staffed at the district, school, and possible subject level. Under their watchful eye, they will interpret whether all goals are being met in every school, class, classroom and for every student student should any student feel not embraced in their full identity blah 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 they can file an anonymous complaint online and one of our highly trained crt specialists will spring into action which by the way is exactly what's happening on college campuses that have i mean it was i think it was ohio state university had 50 some different deans and under deans and associate assistant deans of equity and inclusion blah 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 and uh, anonymous complaints abound and God help the professor who gets complained about. We've all heard those stories. I'm telling you, my friends, you have to f- this stuff. It is, it is far more dangerous than China in terms of an existential threat to this country. Wow, that's a statement. End of rant. Well, China's not going to wipe us off the face of the earth unless they decide to go full nuke, which would be insane. Armstrong and Joe Getty. Sure, suffer depression. The Armstrong and Getty Show. You know, the way the news works is uh, a couple of things. Number one, they're pitching an ideology, and so it's wildly biased. We were talking about that last hour. It gives you this distorted view of, of the country. And or they just go with what's hot. They watch what you, each other are doing constantly in the news media. We're aware of this. We've worked around newsrooms our, our whole uh, mediocre careers. Um, uh, on the other hand, we just... Try to come up with the most interesting and or relevant stuff. For instance, this. This is not in the news in the least. With Afghanistan ending our longest war, blah, blah, blah. We finally got those 2,500 troops out. Hey, lie. It's a major moment in American history, right? Did you know that we have 50,000 men and women scattered across uh, East Africa mostly, but Africa and the Middle East, fighting against various sorts of Islamic insurgents and Al-Qaeda offshoots and Al-Shabaab and the rest of it, 50,000. So they would be soldiers in the war on terror? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They they opened this article with a 550-acre uh, military base, Camp Lemonier, which I'm guessing you have never heard of. No, 550 acres, that's big. It houses U.S. special ops teams tasked with fighting the world's most powerful al-Qaeda affiliates, specifically al-Shabaab. It unfolds over miles of sun-scorched desert and volcanic rock inside the tiny country of Djibouti. Earthquakes shake Djibouti. Uh, the base uh, looks, and the station, troop station here will tell you, like a sand-colored prison fortress. But two sub-camps sit behind 20-foot fences ringed with yet more razor wire, and you get commando teams that jump in airplanes and, and fly about um, across the southern border with Somalia for what they call episodic engagements with al-Shabaab, helping local forces. 
Um, but it's in that case, it's it's I'm not sure how many people are stationed there, but they go through this checklist of all sorts of places in the Middle East and Africa. Fifty thousand of our guys out there with guns in hot zones. And it's not every day, but, uh, you know, every couple of days they fly out and they engage in real fire real combat and what's the what's the reasoning in that that makes sense but having that same thing in afghanistan doesn't uh that's an excellent question nobody's talking about america's longest war in somalia but we've been either aiding or actively joining in the fight against uh, islamic lunatics there forever black hawk down etc it was all about trying to establish a government there and, and yeah. not give way to the warlords and the Islamists. And the other side of that argument would be, um, or, or in addition, I guess, to the argument would be, nobody's talking about making sure schoolgirls learn in Somalia either, because I'm guessing they're not. Right. Yeah, it's an excellent point. So, just wanted you to know, you know, as we've you know, discussed for many, many years, it used to be when the United States was involved in a military endeavor, uh, there were kids from every neighborhood who were in the armed forces, and every family felt it and talked about it, and it was front and center. But now we have a fairly narrow military class, and we can have 50,000 people scattered around the world. And I'm not talking about sitting on a base in South Korea hoping Kim Jong, newly thin fathead, um, doesn't launch a strike. I'm, I'm talking about hot zones. Um, yeah. And it's, it's worth knowing. You could be a, a young guy, probably guy, and uh, come back and have spent your entire military career in full-on battle with bad guys, like stuff you see in the movies, and nobody would even know what you were talking about if you brought it up. I was in Djibouti fighting Al-Shabaab. Where and what? Right. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Is that a restaurant? Uh, we got this text, and we ought to fill this in, just because maybe we're being a little too clever. Uh-oh. Uh, what the hell is tree equity? I specifically listen to you guys all the time, and I think I missed the joke or didn't realize that this is a real thing. If this is a thing, could you please explain what you're talking about? Yeah, sorry about that. In one of the bills, I guess, is it the human infrastructure bill? It's in the real infrastructure bill. I don't remember which one. Well, I thought it was the francification bill. There's actually... a hell of a lot of crap in the so-called real infrastructure bill. But anyway, oh yeah, uh, tree equity, and it's gazillions of dollars. To make sure that uh, under-treed neighborhoods get more trees. There's a belief that some neighborhoods don't have as many trees as other neighborhoods, and that's not fair. And so they're, go- and then, and, and, and you should put, of course, the federal government in charge of this, having yes. a dollar as far away from the roots of the local tree as you can get, because that's where you're going to get metaphor. The, that's where you're going to get the most accuracy. Not really a metaphor. and uh and uh yeah so they're going to spread around gazillions of dollars that uh, here's one thing i guarantee you it won't do it won't end up with an equal number of trees in all the neighborhoods more trees for black folks (laughs) the underserved under treed communities which tend to be of color and blah 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 well if they're in cities yeah there are fewer trees in cities than there are in the countryside or if you think that you've got a problem with that in your town or whatever then y'all should get together and vote on it and uh plant some damn trees but right the federal government being involved in this is hilarious It, it is and that's one of the things that makes me crazy i could repeat my screed of last hour about the government is merely a broker in you know spending tax dollars and keeping a cut but if you want the bluntest dumbest most wasteful approach to a local problem please do employ the federal government if you want it to take decades and never actually happen correctly employ the federal government and yet everybody acts it looks to the feds for solutions i just i don't know what color is the sky in your world 
You called what I said a metaphor. I was looking at my son's uh, homework. He's got a test this week in analogies, metaphors, and similes. And I got to admit, I was reading the definition of each. Ah, I was having trouble telling the difference. I mean, it's they're slicing the days. You slice it pretty thin on analogies, metaphors, and similes. And there was one other word similar to well, that. Well, I know every every simile is a metaphor. Correct. But not every metaphor is a simile. That is analogies. Right. Um, an analogy is uh, is just when you compare one, say, function to a similar function. Yeah, and doesn't have to be. Um, or am I getting it backwards? But uh, if I say like that, noise is like a jackhammer in my brain. Simile, oh, like because I use the word like. Anytime mm-hmm. you use the word like, it's a simile. Um. I'm trying to come up with not using a word like. But anyway, a jackhammer in my brain, there's not actually a jackhammer in my brain. So that makes it a simile as opposed to an analogy? I mean, well, a, now, a metaphor as opposed to an analogy? If you said the voice, a jackhammer keeping me from sleeping, that would be a metaphor. An analogy would be, an analogy is awfully like a simile. They are. That's why I was saying. The the description of them, at least from this paperwork, goes slicing it very thin. And I thought, is it really important to have three different words for this? But anyway, you know, I'm, I'm not anti-learning this stuff. I learned it, but. Define analogy. And I said to my son, to me, a good analogy is like a car driving up a hill. And he, he didn't catch my joke, so. <laughs> An analogy, Jack, is a comparison between two things, typically for the purpose of explanation or clarification. Okay, then what is a metaphor? Um, <laughs> it's uh, describing one thing with another thing. All right. Yeah, I think, well, with a metaphor, the leaves are falling. Yellow snow. No, that's a poor choice. Yellow snow. Now that's, How did that's we get to that. No, no, no. A, <laughs> the leaves are falling. A gentle rain of decaying leaf stuff. I mean, that's that's a metaphor, but it's not an analogy exactly, is it? If I say you're a pain in my ass, you're not actually a pain in my ass, but or is that just an insult? Right. That's just a, well, it's a metaphorical insult. No, it's not. I don't know what it is. The banking system is much like the system of a tree. It takes moisture from below, like mm. the savings, that oh. disseminates the leaves of loans. That's a good That's one. That's an analogy. Gotcha. It's not a good one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Michael. This segment is like nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> there you go. That's a simile, my That's friend. That's pretty good right there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, it's funny when you go through your kid's homework and you remember, ah, oh, God, I remember. You can just, you can just picture like a hot afternoon after lunch, kind of tired, <laughs> teacher talking about this, trying to remember it enough for the quiz. <laughs> Child. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Exactly. Son, trust me. Just get the gist of this and move on. Yeah, and it'll be fine. Everything, yeah. everything will be fine. So a couple of things uh, I came across on the same topic that I thought were fascinating, and I've wondered about this for years and always been kind of afraid to say it out loud because I... It didn't seem like it was cool, right? It sounded like an old man. But uh, Sally Rooney is an author you either have or haven't heard of. Doesn't make any difference, but she's written several very popular, like bestseller novels about young people. Uh, n- not even millennials, but like the next generation. What do they call it? Z, whatever the next one is after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in her nascent, latest one, uh, it redefi- redefines old-fashioned searches for meaning. 
and this is based on her experience being around young people. In Beautiful World, her new book, young people are exploring a different way of being. Now for spoilers. The characters trade in showy declarations of Marxism for a quieter search for meaning. Meaning, they're deeply curious about religion. Casual sex is critiqued. Commitment holds the most allure. A church wedding is the setting for one of the book's most transcendent moments. A baby even appears. Rather than diving into wild experimentation, they embrace a small life. And uh, and as one reviewer put it, the, the youth in this series of novels has now gone trad, as they call it. You know, young people have got to have a cool term for everything. Yes. No, I know it. Stupid terms. And in the end, they're much happier than any of Rooney's previous uh, characters have been in their other books by going trad. So this chronicler of young people has its characters kind of being like our parents and happier, which I find interesting and utterly unsurprising maybe it's surprising that it's a hot new novel but uh, those of us who have lived a little little bit understand that i didn't think it would come back did you i didn't think it was going to come back no no the the appearance of that is a little bit surprising the fact that the characters are happier you know if you're an honest writer is not surprising um one side note before i get into the sex stuff i had not heard the term cottage core but i have seen it i just didn't know i had seen it cottage core is this kind of small prairie life traditional thing. And even Target is selling prairie dresses now, it's said here. Uh, so it's I, like I've seen hardcore. That's that sort of core, but it's prairie core. Yeah, and, and I have seen uh, women in prairie dresses, and, and I didn't realize it was part of kind of like that view of the world. Anyway, so last week uh, I was beaten up on Michelle Goldberg for a really stupid column she had in the New York Times, and then this weekend she had one I really, really liked, why sex-positive feminism is falling out of fashion. And I thought this fit in with what I was just saying about that novel. And it's about how women, well, I'll just read from her article. Um, the warnings of the anti-porn feminists all these years seem to have been belatedly realized. This one professor saying, sex for my students is what porn says it is, girls complain. So they're finding out that their sex lives are based on the world of porn and that that kind of just sets the tone that they're expected to live up to, which is not surprising at all. Right. They're not trying to satisfy, please uh, love uh, their lover. They're trying to recreate porn. <laughs> and these Gen Z women think that sex positivity is overrated. One 23-year-old woman told the professor, it feels like we were tricked into exploiting ourselves. I've been saying this for years. And like I said, I was always kind of embarrassed to say it out loud because you sound like, you know, a stodgy old timer or whatever. But I've, but I've always thought the, 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 the popularity of female comedians about how slutty I am. You realize there's a, I know you're not supposed to believe there's difference between men and women, but there's a big difference sexually between men and women. Women could, it's very easy to be a slutty woman. Very, very, very easy. Because there are plenty of guys that are more than happy to have sex with you with no uh, strings attached. The reverse is not is true, or at least it hasn't been in the past. And you have been tricked into something if you start behaving like men, and you're not going to be happier for it. Using term using new terms for old proclivities, the world demo the word demisexual has become popular. Now, I think I mocked this a while back, but I didn't quite understand what demisexual meant. I thought it was another one of these gender fluid weirdness things. Uh, it refers to those who are attracted only to people with whom they share an emotional connection. 
Before the sexual revolution, of course, many people thought that most women were like this. That's because they were. Now, an aversion to casual sex has become a bona fide sexual orientation. So demisexual is, I'm only going to have sex with people I care about. Sounds like a pretty good idea. In March, Vox's Rebecca Jennings reported on the spread of the cancel porn movement on TikTok. It's just one facet of conservatism for lack of a better term, that's proliferating on TikTok from rather unlikely sources. Young, presumably progressive women who think that what's sometimes called the choice feminism caters to patriarchy and male gaze. Liberal feminism telling young girls that hookup culture is liberating, uh, young women are saying, no, it's not. I think that's, one, true and smart, and two, fantastic that, that, that younger women are catching on to that. It will yield happier lives. Absolutely. To bottom line it. (laughs) And for everybody. Yeah. For everybody, the whole, hey, I get to have sex with whoever I want to. Just, yeah, guys love that idea that they can just use you and have not have to make any commitment of what, yeah, they're, they're, they're on board with that. And y'all live whatever lifestyle you want. I don't, that's no good for the dudes either. No, honestly. Exactly. It's it's going to help everybody. Why do you think every society, every religion has frowned on Turning away from hookup culture. I didn't think that would happen. Armstrong and Getty. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. I got my fancy pants on. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Do you remember a year ago, Coinbase, which is a a tech company, uh, their CEO, Brian Armstrong, put out a statement. Um, it was about a uh, difficult year, global pandemic, shelter in place, widespread protests and riots, riots, West Coast wildfires. Everyone is asking the question about how companies should engage in broader societal issues during these difficult times while keeping their teams united and focused on the mission. Coinbase has had its own challenges here, including employee walkouts. I decided to share publicly how I'm addressing this in case it helps others. Etc. Etc. In short, I want Coinbase to be laser focused on achieving its mission because I believe that this is the way we have the biggest impact on the world. We do this by playing as a championship team, focus on building and being transparent about what our mission is and isn't. The long story short is he's saying, keep the politics out. You come to work to go to work. We have a mission here. You want to do that other stuff? Do it on your own time. It's none of our business, and we don't want it in our business. And, of course, that was extremely controversial. He was condemned. Well, it's been a year now. And Brian Armstrong, your your cousin, mm. uh, tweeted, It's been about a year since my mission-focused blog post. wasn't easy to go through at the time, but looking back, it turned out to be one of the most positive changes I've made at Coinbase, and I'd recommend it to others. We have a much more aligned company now where we can focus on getting work done toward our mission. And it has allowed us to hire some of the best talent from organizations where employees are fed up with politics, infighting, and distraction. Interesting. One of the biggest concerns around our stance was that it would impact our diversity diversity numbers. Since my post, we've grown our headcount about 110%, while our diversity numbers have remained the same or even improved on some metrics. Several people told me that this would never happen when I circulated the original draft internally. It turns out that there are people from every background who want to work at a mission-focused company. What was amazing was the contrast between the news following my post and the reaction from employees and people who spoke to me in private. Yeah, you know, this reminds me of what I've said many times, that uh, they believe it only takes 15% of an active population to pull off a revolution because you have such a giant crowd that will just go along with it just because... They just don't want to get in the way or deal with it or whatever. And I'll bet that happens in a lot of workplaces. The majority of people don't want this conversation at all. But they're Mm -hmm. not going to say anything. 
So you get the impression that the loud people are the majority, the ones wanting to talk politics. Yeah, yeah. We we had a story a while back, and I never got to it. I wonder if Hanson can find it. I think he may have brought it to our attention anyway, our executive producer. It's a job posting board for people who don't want the woke crap. They just want to come yeah. to work. No politics, no vaccine mandates, whatever. Just come work. We'll all get along. So anyway, back to Brian Armstrong's statement. While the media reports were mostly negative. Oh, and that's the other side to that story. The 15% is a good point. Um, but the other side is the me, the impression you get from the American media of what the American people are, what this country is, is so wildly distorted. It is a funhouse mirror. So, while the media reports were mostly negative, and it even spawned some retaliatory and intellectually dishonest hit pieces, the reaction both from employees and the people I spoke to in private was overwhelmingly positive. In fact, I would say it was probably the most positive reaction I've gotten from any change I've made in the history of the company, which is saying something. How could something be so negative in the press, but turn out to be incredibly positive with every stakeholder? The only sense I can make of it is that there is a huge mismatch between people's stated and revealed preferences right now, and we're operating in an environment of virtue signaling and fear of speaking up. The biggest lesson I took away from the whole ordeal is that if you believe something is the right path, it's worth speaking up about, even if it's controversial. You will get lots of attacks online. Not everyone will agree, but ultimately, people want clarity and authenticity from leaders, not platitudes. It will come back to you tenfold. Armstrong and Getty.